I encourage you to take your Bibles this morning and open to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 21. I heard someone who was once talking about courtship, about you know, looking for a wife. They said, courtship is like looking at the beautiful photos in a seed catalog. Then they went on, but marriage is what actually comes up in your garden. Another author wrote this. They said, marriages aren't made in heaven. They come in kits and you have to put them together yourself. There's some reality to that. Our focus this Sunday and for the next two weeks, the next two Sundays, we're going to focus on marriage. And the text before it, before you here this morning, as you've opened to, to Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 21, And from there to the end of the chapter, it's a marvelous passage on marriage, a passage that instructs us on on how to build, how to grow our marriage kits, as it were, into something that is beautiful rather than something that is disappointing. And in an age, a time where good marriages are a rarity, the words that are here are golden All of us need to listen intently here to God's Word and to invest in learning it and putting it into practice. Whether you come here today as someone who is married or whether you're here today as someone who is single, this passage is of great value to all of us. It will either help us to build a strong marriage or perhaps help to mend a hurting marriage or possibly to prepare you for a, an eventual marriage someday, or at the very least, and I don't think least, but very importantly, to equip you and, and to help you be ready to share godly wisdom and godly counsel with others as you get to talk with them about what God's plan and God's design is in marriage. However, I do think that as great as this passage is, that Many, if not most folks, make a mistake when they come here to Ephesians 5 to begin to learn about marriage. Because when they do, it's not the problem with the text itself, but it's a problem with that they they come and they fail to appreciate, they fail to understand and recognize that Paul's instructions to husbands and his instructions to wives does not start here in Ephesians 5.21. The Apostle Paul, you see, wrote this, he penned this as part of a letter. And the Apostle Paul is assuming that when you start here in Ephesians 5, 21, 22, that you have paid attention to everything that he has written thus far. And that you are taking this in the context of everything that he has said so far. Paul, and he begins in the first part of this book in chapters 1 and chapters 2 and chapters 3, talking about who we are in Jesus Christ. Then in chapter 4, he begins with the practical implications of what that is. And as we began our study in January, we started in chapter 4 with a little brief look back at what was in chapters 1 through 3, and we started looking at the practical implications as He calls us as brothers and sisters in Christ, as the family of God, as the body of Christ, to live together in unity, and He gives very practical, if not nosy, uh, and uh, 
you know, meddling type instructions and in, in about how we are to live together as believers in Jesus Christ. But you see, as Paul is giving here then instructions to you and me as to how we are to treat our husband and our wife at home, he's assuming that we are taking everything that he has told us about how to live together as brothers and sisters in Christ and that we're applying that as well. See, the problem is, and sadly, is that most of us generally fail to connect the dots. And so we, we end up treating our wife, we end up treating our husband, we end up treating our kids or our parents differently and often worse than we treat one another in church and the folks down the pew from you. See, I have a feeling that if we, you know, followed you home or if we planted little cameras around your house and we listen into your conversations and we hear how you talk to one another and treat one another, we would find that you tend to not be so nice at home. We do a good job, don't we, of cleaning up and looking good on the outside and you talk to me and as you're going out the door and I just think, wow, those are nice people. And you get home and <laughs> isn't it good we don't have cameras at home, right? It oughtn't be that way. And so really before we jump in into this passage, and we're going to do that over the next two weeks, to jump into this passage here beginning in verse 21, or actually verse 22, and, and we're going to, to really dig into that next week and the next week. This morning, it really is, it behooves us to back up the train and to go back to chapter 4 and verse 1 as Paul lists out the instructions for how we to treat one another and to look at those again through the lens of marriage and the lens of our homes. And when we do that, we're going to lay a foundation we're going to set the table then for what, it, what marriage looks like and the instructions of, to husbands and wives in, when we get to that part. But if we start there without the other really in our minds, as to uh, we don't have a good foundation. And so let's go back. Chapter 4, verse 1. So you're already at chapter 5. Just turn back a page. And we're just going to, this morning, I'm going to break every rule of preaching because usually you're supposed to have one or two points. I've got 20. So I hope you brought a lunch. I'm going to talk fast, which is hard for me because I am from Texas and we tend to talk like this. But I'm going to try to speed it up and we're going to, we're going to fly. But this is critical stuff. So bear with me. Hang with me. Let's jump in. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, Paul writes, urge you to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and with gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Again, 20 essential things, 20 keys to have good relationships, to have a, a good marriage. Here we go. First thing, chapter 4, verse 2, he says this, Be humble and gentle. Put it another way, get rid of pride and self-centeredness and be gentle. Carefully, gentle is, is being careful of being protecting and looking out for the, the other person so that you don't 
cause harm. The problem in most marriages with that is that generally we are focused on the wrong three people in our marriage. Me, myself, and I. (laughs) Instead of being focused on the other person, and humility is calling us to that. I often ask when I'm doing counseling or we're going through this, I'll often ask the question, what's the opposite of, of love? And most people will say the opposite of love is hate. And I say, well, if what is love? And the real definition for love, biblical love, is putting someone else ahead of ourselves. Putting their interests ahead of me. That is love. It's putting them first rather than me. Well, the opposite of that is pride and selfishness. I would say the opposite of love then is selfishness. And so this verse is calling you and me to be people who are humble. And then when we're humble, we can be gentle. We can really look out for their interests above ours. Verse 2, he went on and he said, Be patient. Be patient. With patience, bear with one another in love. Patience literally means, another word for it is long-suffering. And you say, what does long-suffering mean? Turn the words around. Suffers long. Ooh, I don't like that. Well, that's what we're called to do. Suffer long. Patience isn't easily upset. Patience isn't easily angered. Patience isn't easily patience is not easily flustered. It is not easily aggravated. It is not easily offended. Patience suffers long. You need patience to deal with your spouse. I know that because I know them. And you. And I know that none of you is perfect. I know you that well. And you know me well enough to know that I'm not perfect. And my wife needs patience with me. And I with her. And we all need patience with each other. Patience then allows us to do the rest of that, which is to bear with one another. Literally to put up with each other. We have to do that sometimes. Marriage needs tenacity. To be able to hang in there when it's not easy and it's no fun, but we have to bear with one another. We have to be patient with another because they're not perfect. We do that because of love. We bear with one another in love. Love is not something, again, that we do because we feel it. It's something we do because we choose it. Be patient. Thirdly, He says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Marriage, if you're going to have a good one, if you're going to have good relationships, it takes hard work. We saw this a few weeks ago as we were looking at this passage from the perspective of a church. If we have to be committed to hard work to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace in the family of God, in the church, can we expect that it's going to be any easier at home when you live with someone 24-7? It's going to be harder and it's going to take... Commitment and effort. Don't expect it to just happen. A good relationship, a good marriage will not happen without intentional effort. So commit to it. Work at it. You know, we all want to believe the little fairy tale and the nice little, you know, movie and song ending that you just fall in love, you, you know, just drift off into the sunset and everything's wonderful and happily, happily ever after. And if you've been married for more than a week, you understand that that doesn't work that way. 
It takes commitment and work. It takes wisdom to be tactful and determination not to pick fights. And We have to choose not to be crabby and contentious. And it's hard work to settle differences and work them through rather than just fight or ignore them. Fourthly, we go to verse 25. Skip down a little bit. And Paul writes, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. If we're going to have a good relationship, if we're going to have a good marriage, we need to be honest with one another. In marriage, we are called to unity, to one flesh. Deception and lying are antithetical to that. They're in opposition to that. It is instead, deception, lies, they destroy trust and they hurt a relationship. You just take it, Paul says, we're members of one body, take it to your body. You know, does your hand try to deceive your eyes? A magician does that with his hands, but he's not your body. If your, your hand doesn't do that. Your eyes don't try to play tricks on your feet. Ah, let's get them this time. That doesn't make sense, you know, if the eyes just say, there's a step here, and you, you know, you, <laughs> and there's not one, or it says there's not a step there, and there is one, that'd be stupid. Our bodies don't do that because it's counterproductive, and it's harmful to the whole body. And he says that's the way it is. If we in marriage, as we'll find later, are one flesh, we're one thing, it's, it, it doesn't work together to not be truthful and honest so that we work together. We also do that as we speak the truth, as he points out in verse 15, we are to speak the truth in love. We are to do it lovingly to one another. Verse 26, he goes on and he says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not and give no opportunity to the devil. The fifth key that we need to have a good marriage is to control our anger. All anger is not sin. It says, be angry and do not sin. And we know that all anger is not sin because you'll find in the pages of Scripture that times God is angry. There is a proper anger, but it's not usually what you and I have. Usually we are angry about the wrong things for the wrong reasons and we express it in the wrong ways. It is not a righteous anger. And so we need to control our anger. Anger easily leads to sin. It also easily grows into bitterness, which our text says here gives Satan a foothold into into our life and into our relationships where he can destroy, wreak havoc. So we need to control and limit anger. If we're going to be angry, it needs to be about the right things and the right reasons and in the right way and it will not be very often he says we need to not let the sun go down on our wrath it means need to keep short accounts there's forgive quickly don't let anger fester where it will move from even if it's right anger it can can if we harbor it and hang on to it it will can corrupt and become sinful Become And ultimately, anger moves into bitterness. I heard one couple say, they took this literally, and they said, uh, so we made the principle we'd never go to bed angry and we never have. Of course, that meant that one year we were awake for three solid months. <laughs> I've seen over the years as a pastor just how damaging and how destructive and how hurtful anger can be. 
Few things are as difficult, few things are as frustrating, few things as destructive in a home as an angry person. If you find yourself frequently angry, weekly, even daily, you've got a problem. If if your husband, if your wife, if your kids tiptoe around the house, not necessarily literally, but figuratively, trying to make sure that they don't set you off, your anger is a problem and it's choking the life out of your family. You need to address it. If necessary, and I recommend it, get some help. Talk to a brother, a sister uh, in Christ. uh, Talk with an elder, a pastor. Let's work on this. It's a, a big problem in families and marriages. Verse 28, he goes on, he says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with those in need. Be productive would be my summary of this. I doubt you that we'll find that any of you have been you know, recently knocking off QT stores. I doubt that we'll find that many of you or any of you, hopefully, you know, are like Bernie Madoff and running Ponzi schemes or, or pickpocketing folks down at the mall. You know, I kind of doubt that's many of, problem with any of us. But even at home, even in the little things, don't take what isn't yours. Let the thief no longer steal. But the positive instruction of this, the positive of this, is but rather let him do honest work with his own hands. There's, a, there's an admonition here for us to not be lazy. If you are prone to sleeping late and sleeping the day away, spending hours on video games, watching, spending hours and hours watching TV or surfing the web or uh, you know, engrossed in social media, this is for you. Lots of elbows being (laughs) flying right now. You see, when we become preoccupied with things that are really not productive, that really are worth less or mostly so, our relationships suffer. Our relationships with our spouse or with our parents or with our kids suffer when we're lazy because when we're engrossed in things like that so that we are not doing our part in contributing to the family and in contributing to to things. Other people have to pick up the slack and that can really hurt relationships and build resentments. God calls for us on the positive side here for us to be productive people, to do something worthwhile with our time and our energies, to to use our talents and serve other people and create and build and make rather than being a sponge who just absorbs. Next, and tied with that, he talks about sharing from the, so that we can have stuff to share with those in need. May I say, I think it's, a, it's a very important in marriages as couples and families to work together in serving others, to be generous with our stuff and to be generous with our time, to look for those who have needs and to participate in helping. Not only does that benefit other people, and not only does it bring honor to Christ, it does both of those, but it's amazing when we do that how it changes us. How, how, how many of our problems 
start to become irrelevant once we start helping other people in their need. How it begins to change our attitudes and change our perspectives. And the things that we were getting so bent out of shape about and wrapped up with, they become trivial and they begin to go away as we begin to understand the the problems of others. We either realize our problems aren't that big or we realize our blessings are that big. It changes us. Share with the needy. Number eight, let no corrupting talk, it says, verse 29, let no corrupting talk, no unwholesome words come out of your mouth. Uh, that's the NIV uses the word unwholesome words. Let none of that come out, but only such is good for the, for the building up as fits the occasion so that it may give grace to those who hear. I think this is one of the key and very, very important things and one of the places where so many marriages and so many relationships break down. Unwholesome words. Words that are not good for the other person. Words that hurt. Words that destroy. Words that deceive. Words that put down. Words that belittle. Words that none of them have a place in your family, and in your mouth as a believer in Jesus Christ. Even when they're done in fun, quote, they do great damage. Calling your child stupid, calling your wife fat, calling your husband a pig, you know, or whatever things people do, those things ought not be in our vocabulary or ought not be in our lips. They are destructive and they have long-term consequences. Unwholesome words spoken directly to your loved one are damaging and they are destructive and they're extremely discouraging. But then when we take those words and we spread them to other people, like when, you know, the other ladies are just grousing about their husband so you join in, or the guys are, you know, talking around the water cooler at work and telling stories about, oh, my wife, oh, well, let me tell you about my not only is that, is, are those words discouraging to your loved one, but they are a betrayal. They are, it's betraying confidence and trust, un- severely undermining relationships. Technology now makes it possible to take that kind of foolishness where it can be spread farther and hurt deeper and last longer than ever before. So I beg you, don't get on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat and start tweeting and posting and blogging or whatever and uh, start spreading unwholesome speech about anyone, especially your family, your spouse. Unwholesome words. Rip them out of our vocabulary and off of our cell phones. Instead of that, he goes on, we are to be builders. He says, only use words that build. Only use words that are good for the building up and as fit the occasion. The words that should come out of our mouths are the words that encourage, the words that help. And it's interesting, he uses this word that fits the occasion, or in the NIV it says, according to their needs. It says that what we need to be doing then is as as husbands, we need to be studying our wives and wives studying our husbands, parents studying our kids, kids looking at your parents and asking the question, not just what can I say that's nice, you know, oh, you know, nice dress, yeah, but what is it they need to hear? 
What is it they really need to hear to meet them in their, their place where they're insecure or the place where they are hurting? What is it they need to hear? That's what he's saying here. We need to change the way we talk at home. Get rid of the unwholesome words. Bring in the building words. Number 10, we find in verse 31 where Paul writes, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. I would summarize it like this. No bad attitudes. The problem in our marriages isn't just the things we do and it's not just the things we say. Often the problem is deeper than that and it's the underlying problem of our attitudes. We must not, we cannot afford to harbor attitudes uh, that are hurtful and bitter and malicious toward our spouse. They've got to go. They're detrimental in, in building a good relationship. How can we have a good relationship if we're just... and wanting to tear them down? Bad attitudes have to go. Verse 32, the next one he says, Instead of those things, we are to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. First thing from that list, he says, be kind. We need to go out of our way to do kind things for each other. The unexpected, random acts of kindness, that kind of kindness, as well as the kindness in the dailies of life. I heard a cynic who said, you know, that when a man opens the door of his car for his wife, that tells you one of two things. Either the car is new or the wife is. That's the cynic, and it shouldn't be that way. <laughs> Kindness should be something that doesn't last for a little while and fades away, but something that continues in the dailies of life and, and we go over and above board and do extra things that are unexpected and just because that is kindness and it should be characteristic in our marriages and it, we won't have a good one if it's not. We need to be, he goes on, tender-hearted. The NIV says, compassionate means we genuinely care for the other person. We listen to them. We are sympathetic. We try to see things through their eyes. We try to feel what they feel rather than dismissing their feelings and dismissing their concerns and dismissing their needs and focusing on our own feelings. We need to think of them. And what is it they're going through right now? These are hard things to do. I'm not saying any of these are easy. That's why we need to work at this. He goes on, be forgiving. Forgive like Christ forgave us. We just celebrated that at the table this morning. Forgiving, how does God forgive us? Completely, continually, even when we don't deserve it, even especially when we don't deserve it. That's how we are to forgive one another, to take the amazing grace we've received from God and to dispense that to one another. Chapter 5, Paul moves on. He says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself for us. Number 14, we're to love well. It says walk or live in love. Love should be characteristic of us. It should be what moves us and motivates us and, and what describes us as people look at who we are and how we live what does love look like and how are we supposed to love? It says here, like Christ loves us. 
How did Christ love us? He sacrificed Himself. He gave Himself for us. When we put that in terms of a marriage, what does it look like? It's radical stuff. It's scary stuff. And it's stuff that we all go, <gasps> inwardly when we think of, I have to do that? What it means is we yield up our desires. We live, yield up our agenda. We yield up our preferences. And put the other person first and seek their agenda, their preferences, their desires, their needs ahead of ours. He goes on. Number 15. The 15th one we find over in uh, verses 3 and 4. And he says, But sexual immorality and all impurity and covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. There's, let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Be sexually faithful. He's saying sexual impurity should be absolutely foreign to us as believers in Christ. And if we went around and had time to talk and could talk individually, I bet there'd be no argument among any of us. We'd all agree that sexual immorality is destructive in a marriage. But we, when we look at, at where we live, we obviously live in a very sex, highly sexualized culture, a sexually saturated world. And it's e maybe easy to say this, but it can be very hard to do this. So let me suggest very quickly three things that I think we need to do if we're going to put this into practice in our lives and in our marriages. First thing is we need to guard our hearts. We need to be careful. We need to restrict what we watch and what we listen to because what we feed our minds upon absolutely matters. This is important whether you're a teenager or whether you're, you're a 90-year-old. What we listen to, what we feed our mind upon matters and it, it affects our heart. It affects our thinking and it begins to influence us and it begins to little by little erode our, our thinking and we buy the lie that sexual immorality, sexual sin is normal and it's inconsequential and we get sucked in to the culture. Don't go there. The second thing along with that is don't toy with danger. Don't put yourself into tempting situations and don't remain in situations that become tempting. Be like Joseph with Potiphar's wife when the situation Presented and, and, and it was a tempting thing. What did he do? He ran. That's what Paul tells Timothy. He says, flee, you full us. You find yourself moving into a situation. Don't just sit there. Well, you know, this. I, can, I think I can handle this. This isn't a bit. He said, get out of there. <laughs> Don't play with it. Don't toy with it. And he says, likewise, he said, I think this is, tells us that don't mess around online. Visual and emotional pornography, fantasy with virtual relationships, reconnecting with old flames and social media, all that kind of stuff and tons more is just a mouse click away. It's just a touch on the smartphone away. And it is rife with danger. And again, whether you are a teenager or 90-something, don't toy with danger. Don't toy with danger. Run from it. Uh, to this, I would say, help your spouse. As married folks, we have a responsibility for our mate. First Corinthians chapter six, Paul talks about 
fulfill your marital duty. He says we have a marital duty to our husband, to our wife. And we're to fulfill that. It, and, and it is in a, the context in 1 Corinthians 6 is about marriage and about sexuality and, and about a world that is full of temptation. And his point is that it is our responsibility to our husband, our responsibility to our wife, to not send them out starving, whether it is starving sexually or starving emotionally or starving relationally and sending them out into a world that is filled with temptation. But instead, we are to guard and help and protect our spouse. Three things to help us in, a, in an overtly sexual and immoral world to put this principle and this key into place, to be sexually faithful. Quickly, four more things. Be thankful, he goes on. And he says in verse 4, he says, be thankful, be full of thanks. Instead of the above, instead of sexual infidelity... Be thankful. And you think, how are those things tied together? In the verse, they are. Don't do this, 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 this. Instead, be thankful. And we go, how do those fit? Why are they in the same sentence? The answer lies in understanding the root of sexual immorality and temptation. It's rooted in that little word up there, you see. But sexual immorality and purity or covetousness. What is covetousness? It's, having what I, it's wanting what I do not have. And its, rooted, its root is dissatisfaction and it's saying, what I have isn't what I want. What I have isn't, you know, it's, my expectations are not matched up with my reality and so I want more. And so because I want more, we are very subject to the lure of sin which says, just do this. You know, you just have to blur the lines a little. Just move a little here and you will find satisfaction and that's the way... Sin works. It's a little lure. It's a lie, by the way. That's the whole lie of the world. Instead, it's a trap. But the, the antidote for it, he says, is thanksgiving. The antidote is finding satisfaction in Christ and the gifts that you have now. It's, it's trusting that as you obey Him, He will do what He has promised, that He will, he will provide what you need. That ultimately, if you, if you trust and find your delight in Him, as Psalm says, He will give you the desires of your heart. And that's why Paul says, instead of immorality, let there be thanksgiving. Are, are you in, a, in a, an unsatisfying relationship in your marriage? Then seek your fulfillment in Jesus Christ, not in your spouse. Start counting your blessings and giving thanks. Start praising God for the blessings you have rather than complaining about the ones you don't have and God will, in His grace, give you joy and contentment where you are. And that is the antidote to the temptation. Verse 15, he says, Be careful then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil I'd say this, it means live for heaven. Understand that this life at its very best is very brief. Eternity is forever and heaven is forever. And heaven we see in chapter 1 is our guaranteed inheritance if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. You're headed for heaven and everything you really need, everything that's really worth having is already yours, we find in chapters 1, 2, and 3. It's, we've already received it in Christ. It's guaranteed. And with that in mind, with that as the understanding, folks, 
we don't have to sweat the small stuff. And everything of this earth is the small stuff. And the majority of the things that we find conflict about in marriage is the trivial stuff, the small stuff. When we get an eternal perspective, it changes things. Aim to make the most of our opportunities, to give of our time and our treasures and our talents, to serve God and to invest in eternity. Number 18, keys to have a good marriage, a great marriage. Verse 18 and number 18, both, it says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. The Bible, I must be clear, does not forbid drinking alcohol. Nor does the Bible require you to choose like my wife, Janet, and I have personally chosen to be non-drinkers. The Bible doesn't, doesn't say thou must do this. But this passage does, however, plainly condemn drunkenness and self-indulgence. Other passages in the Bible are very clear, giving many warnings about alcohol and for good reasons. Alcohol is a major contributor to ruined families. It is involved in most domestic violence. It is involved in the majority of of fatal car accidents. It is involved in many regrettable decisions, foolish actions, hurtful words. If we apply this to our homes and marriages, simply it is live sober. If you don't if you don't choose to live alcohol free, then live or use it judiciously, and I would say, according to Scripture, sparingly. It's all right, but be careful. He goes on, be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Build spiritually in your home. Make it your aim to seek to build up your husband and wife in their relationship with Christ, to grow together in Christ. Go to church together, Bible studies together if, if you can. I, I would just say, if you're married and your husband or your wife is not a Christian, or if they are a believer but they have no interest in growing in Christ, this isn't saying use a club and go you know, try to push them and force them and nag them. And it's not that at all. That's counterproductive. No value in that. Simply look for ways that you can encourage your spouse in their spiritual growth. Number 20, verse 21, and the last one, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Put the other person first. Submit to one another. Defer to their needs above their own. You might say, hey, that sounds kind of familiar. It kind of sounds like what you said about love. It sounds like what you said about the first one where it says to be humble Exactly. It's the same concept said several ways. Paul isn't stupid. He knows that we need repetition. (laughs) This is a big deal. Love, humility, they're, they're, they're hand in hand. It's putting the other person first and putting me... It's lowering myself and exalting you. That is a crucial issue. So much stuff here. What are we going to do with it? May I suggest... Don't be overwhelmed. Don't look at this whole list and just say, man, I really am a loser because I guarantee none of us get all this right and none of us ever will till we get to heaven. But we are to be growing. We are to be changing. 
And we want our marriages to be better and that involves us growing and changing. So what I would suggest is that you work on a few at a time, that I work on a few at a time. Look at the list and look at this and choose the one or two where you say, you know what, I need, the mo- I need work in these. These are my lowest scores, I would say. Or better yet, ask, how would my wife score me here? <laughs> choose the one she would say you need to work on most or that your husband would say you need to work on this the most and then take those and then... Take it before the Lord and confess your need and confess your failure. Say, tell Him. He already knows. No secret. This is where I need help, Lord. Confess it to your family, your spouse as you need, as appropriate. And ask the Lord every day for grace and for strength to help you change. Then I might suggest taking the verse that's appropriate that goes along with the things where you have need and put it to memory. Maybe go to other Scriptures along the same thing and put those to memory because the Lord tends to use His Word to wash and cleanse us and change us. Then lastly, I'd say work at it. Put effort into it. And it'll be worth it. Because I believe God's going to use His Word and He'll use every one of these things to bring good change and good growth into our marriages. Let's pray. Father, this is, we, we took a little extra long, but it was important stuff. And it hits us right where we live. Father, none of us have a perfect marriage, but you desire that we have good ones. As believers in Jesus Christ, you have called us to live together in unity as believers and all the more in, in the covenant of marriage where you've called us to be one flesh. You want us to be united. You want us our relationship to be one of love and compassion and kindness and gentleness and patience and all of these things that are there. Lord, forgive us that we have messed things up so badly so often. Lord, don't leave us there. Change us. Change our hearts so that we not only know it, but we desire it. Change our will that we'll be willing to change. And Lord, by Your grace, may You build in in us, in our church, build strong marriages. For then we have strong families and we have a strong church and we have a strong testimony. As people look and say, how come, what's different about your relationship? I'd like that. We can say the difference is, I'm a great sinner, but I have a great Savior. And we can point people to Jesus. For His glory, and in His name we ask this. Amen.